Thank you, Jacob, and good morning to you. It's good to be with you. I'm Kurt Parker. We're going to be back in our study this morning in First Timothy. A special thank you to Daniel Gillette for bringing a, a great update on mission emphasis on the translation work that's being done with some tribes in India. We're very blessed by that and by the uh, message, and so I was very grateful for that from him. So we're going to return in our study, Paul's letters to the pastors here in First and Second Timothy and Titus. We're in First Timothy chapter 3. You can turn there if you would. We're going to be picking up in verse 8. In 1972, NASA launched an exploratory space probe called Pioneer 10. The satellite's primary mission was to reach Jupiter, photograph the planet, its moons, and send data back to Earth about Jupiter's magnetic fields, radiation belt, and atmosphere. Scientists regarded this as a bold plan for, at the time, no Earth satellite had ever gone beyond Mars, and they feared the asteroid belt would destroy the satellite before it could ever reach its target. Pioneer 10, though, accomplished its mission and much more. Swinging past the giant planet on November of 1973, Jupiter's immense gravity hurled Pioneer 10 at a higher rate of speed towards the edge of the solar system. At one billion miles from the sun, Pioneer passed Saturn. At some two billion miles, it hurtled past Uranus. Neptune at nearly three billion miles. Pluto at almost four billion miles. By 1997, 25 years after its launch, Pioneer 10 was more than 6 billion miles from the sun. Despite that immense distance, though, Pioneer 10 continued with its small little transmitter to send back radio signals to scientists on Earth, each message taking more than nine hours to reach the planet. The little satellite that could accomplished a lot more than was expected. Engineers designed Pioneer 10 with an approximate three-year lifespan. Kept on going and going, and by functioning faithfully for more than 30 years, the spacecraft accomplished more than anyone thought possible. Pioneer 10 sent its last signal to Earth on January 23rd of 2003. It is currently still traveling at about 28,000 miles an hour on its way to the Taurus constellation, and it's approximately 9.6 billion miles from the sun. And as I read that, and I've mentioned that to you before because it's just so remarkable, when you hear that story, you can't help but see that it's analogous to the Christian life, particularly to our study. And as cool as the Pioneer 10 has having more than 30 years service life is and adding immeasurably to the knowledge of our solar system, think about that amount of service and what could be accomplished for the kingdom in a lifetime of faithful service as a believer doing what you're designed to do. As I think about 30 years of faithfully doing what we saw last time, J.I. Packer said, every believer's primary job in serving the king is in serving the king's servants. When we offer ourselves to God in this way, faithfully over the long haul, the Lord can really accomplish a lot for his glory. It might not seem like much, we might not be much when we look at it from the naked eye, but this is what some of our service to God is supposed to look like faithfulness, simplicity, longevity. We have to be willing not to quit, too. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, the writer exhorts the church, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. That's Pioneer 10, wasn't it? Endurance over 30 years. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. And when it comes to service, which has really been our focus for the last several weeks, we know how our Savior feels about it. In fact, he said in Mark chapter 10, 
in verse 43, one of the many places, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be considered great, serve in God's kingdom. If you want to be considered first of all, serve other people. And what's really wonderful is that Christ in his instruction for the proper functioning of the church, as he wrote this letter for that particular purpose, knew that the action of service was so vital for the church that he gave the church the official office so we would know what that was supposed to look like. And that's been our focus over the last two weeks. We saw as we introduced this passage that the original sense of the term doulos, slave and diakonos, service, are just very general terms for serving. And any kind of service would be in mind here, but particularly a humble, gracious kinds of service that Christ modeled for us, doing whatever's needed for the benefit of the church by devoting time and trouble and substance to giving all the practical help and material help and physical help, overflowing in any kind of imaginative kindness for life. That's what that looks like. You can just kind of plug that in any place over the long haul. That's very pleasing to the Lord, and you're great in His kingdom. You won't be great in the earth's kingdom. You won't be great in the kingdom of here and this culture, but you'll be great in God's kingdom. And what's unique in our text is that this remarkable word is used in the official sense. So all those hundreds of times we've looked at all those examples over the last couple of weeks, we have an official sense here. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you would, and verse 8. And we're going to read through verse 15. This is going to be our section under our evaluation today. It's going to start this way in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. Verse 9, beholding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Stop right there. Now, we saw last time uh, that Paul is obviously being carried along by the Holy Spirit to address this wonderful official office of deacon. And so, translators took the word serve and gave it English letters. And that's remarkable all by itself. And as we read our passage, it's now referring to a group of chosen and select people and their servants. And they're to be the living examples for the church of what the words doulos and diakonos look like, humble, gracious service. Now, here in this section, we're dealing with the matter of the qualifications of those who serve in this official office of deacon. And it's important because Paul was instructed by Jesus to write the letter to Ephesus for Timothy. And then he, as we just saw in verse 15, he says, in case I'm delayed, I'm writing so you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So what's the purpose of the writing? So we'll know how the church is supposed to function. We're still in the church age now. So everything that we read that Paul has written to Timothy is important for us still today. And just like the office of elder, this section's not written in a vacuum. Obviously, there were problems. The office had to be defined to make sure that those who served did so with the qualifications that the Lord requires of the office. They're officially deacons, 
not because they do all the service or that they do all the work, but because they're a model of the proper kind of service for everyone else. And so that's why we read deacons likewise, like the elders we just got through talking about starting in verse 1, in like manner, and the qualifications are basically the same as we've seen. They are, first of all, a model of service. That's the first thing that caught the attention of the church, that these were people who served. And they are also a model of personal character that we'll see and have seen in their private lives and home life and family and their testimony to a watching world. And there's no lessening of the standard between an elder and a deacon. They serve a unique position in the church, and so the standards are similar, and they're to be equally godly men, and whatever the deacons are to be, that's what we're all to be. Now, in our study of the passage, we've been able to mark some qualifications, some principles, if you will, from the verse on deacon leadership. These are handholds to help us understand the context. And I do that because that's the way you approach the Word of God. You allow it to explain what it wants to explain. It's not three points in a poem, somehow trying to jazz it up and make it more exciting for everyone. Whatever the Word of God says, that's what we need. And so as we study it, I try to, in my approach to the study, give you a model where you can also study the Word of God. You have the same book and you have the same uh, teacher And so you can come to those same kinds of conclusions. And so what we've seen is a number of places where, as Paul writes the church, and we get to this section in verse 8, he says a number of things that are important for us to pick up on as we think about the official office. So verse 8 says this, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. First of all, we saw that they must be men of dignity. That is the word semnos. Uh, That is the word where we get our word seminal someone who has authority in a certain area, someone who is the benchmark. That's the idea here. These guys are serious and can be held as an example of these seri- the seriousness in these spiritual issues. The fitting behavior implying dignity and respect. The idea is they have a respectability that people are going to pick up on because, again, this is an example. Someone can watch their life and the way they selflessly serve, those habits strongly influence other people. And it's a beautiful adjective and and a very important designation for those who serve in that office. And the seriousness here allows them to see the needs of the congregation and meet those needs as an example to others. And then that next character qualification is right after that. They are not, it says, double-tongued. That was qualification number two. That's integrity of speech. They can't be a person who says one thing to one person and another thing to someone else. That's, liter- that's the literal meaning, not two words, not saying two different things. That defines a gossip or a slanderer or a busybody, repeating things that shouldn't be repeated. And there's always a high premium on verbal honesty and integrity among spiritual leaders, and this is why they have to be the example here, to speak faithfully and righteously and honestly and uprightly. And then the third one we saw, and not is implied here, so the first one is not double-tongued, and then not, and then not. The next three, those three in a row, have them implied not addicted to much wine. So number three, the deacon is to be the kind of person who does not allow the draw of drink to influence his life. The idea is literally to occupy yourself with it, to be in need of or possession of it. That's the idea. The present active nature of the participle just means this is his habitual practice. This is how he runs his life. Habitually, he's known as a person who's not occupied with alcohol. And then the third one is not fond of sordid gain. This is the idea of being greedy to prosper, desiring the base, that's the word sordid, the base kinds of things of life, the things that you can accumulate. That can't be his uh, his main drive. 
It's not indicating that a person can't be wealthy. It's not saying that the person has to be poor. It's just, it has to do with the heart. Here, it's not in love with money. And that was qualification number four. The deacon is to be the kind of person who can't be found fond or greedy or literally have a base attitude towards those things about what he can get, be, do, or achieve. So these must be some of the problems in Ephesus. So you can tell they're not written, uh, these things are not written in a vacuum. Uh, so there obviously was some difficulty here. So to serve in the official office, this is a non-negotiable, as are the other ones. And it will require the constant waging of war against materialism. And because it's one standard of godliness for everyone, that's always everyone's uh, direct uh, drive, right? To withstand this war and, and not be sucked into materialism. You don't want to honestly answer the question, do you love money, with an answer yes, any more than the deacon can answer that with yes. Now look at verse 9. And again, this has to do with spiritual life. Verse 9 says, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And the words here are very full. And, and very uh, taking a lot of area. Not comes before the last three, but, and here but comes here. So not those three things, but this thing. And the first part is holding to, ekontos, present active particle. It is to, it is to possess something to the point of wearing it. And uh, it's the ongoing attire of life. What is the deacon to hold to as a matter of a qualification? Here it is, the mystery of the faith. Simply, the great truths of the faith are to be clothing or the way that they dress themselves. That's the life of the leader. And we've looked at this before, so you know that the mystery in the New Testament is something that was hidden, but it's now revealed. So this is the New Testament revelation. That's what was hidden in the past and now have come to, to bear at the coming of Christ. It's the story of redemption. The deacon has to understand these kinds of things and wear them as clothing. The mystery of the faith. Every time it's referred to, that means what it means to be a believer. It has to do with the seeds and sowing and the ability to discern salvation, as we looked at last time as an illustration. It encompasses the mystery of the incarnation of Christ and the indwelling Christ and the Jew and Gentile together in Christ and, and the saving gospel and the sanctification of the believer and, and on and on, the mystery of the rapture of the church. These things, the deacon, not, not only does he need to know these facts, he needs to wear these facts. This is how he lives. That's the fabric of his life, these mysteries of the faith. And he has to wear them, it says, with a clear conscience. That just means that he lives this out in such a way that a rightly informed conscience will have no grounds to condemn him. And very similar to the elder not being able to be called out, and it's what the preaching of the church is supposed to accomplish. Remember, a rightly informed conscience, and we talk about this a lot so you can understand what this means, will monitor the life, prompting action and decisions to conform that life to the will of God in obedience. And those who lead the church as elders can help accomplish that by focusing on what the Word of God says in their preaching and teaching. And the deacon spends time in the Word himself and has cultivated that habit as a lifestyle because that's the only way he's going to be able to live out this qualification as an example. And that's just obvious, I think, but a very high standard uh, nonetheless. And, the, and, and sound doctrine is very important to Paul, and he takes a lot of care with it, and he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction, he says, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience, there's our word, and a sincere faith. So the goal of clear teaching and the clear teaching of the Word of God particularly is to produce a rightly informed conscience. Do you get that? I encourage you to be in the Word each day. Why? So that you can have a rightly informed conscience. 
Because the better you understand those things the Word of God has explained to you, the doctrine and all of those things, the stronger your conscience will be. The more you apply your understanding to the Bible and the stronger your faith and belief and the stronger your conscience then will then reflect that understanding. When a person has a strong grasp of doctrine, a clear understanding of theology, and holds to the mystery of the faith with a great strength, when that person violates that doctrine then, you come to a crossroads in your life, there's some temptation coming on, they have a very strong conscience reprimanding them, see? People wonder all the time, how could he possibly do this? How could she possibly do some certain thing? The way that they do some certain thing and the horrible things that we read about is because their conscience has not been rightly informed. In fact, the Bible says it's been seared or it's calloused. It's not responding like it should anymore. And when it doesn't respond like it should, then anything's possible. But that can come over time when you move yourself away from the Word of God. The conscience is no longer functioning as it should. And we saw that that really defines qualification number five. The deacon has to know the truth, hold the truth, and obey the truth in such a way so he's going to wear that truth, and in doing that, their conscience will keep them pointed in the right direction. Because here's the thing, beloved, and here's the other side. If you don't know what the gospel says, if you're unsure of what the Bible says on things, if you're unsure about doctrine, then your conscience will not be informed correctly, and you're going to vacillate back and forth between what you think you may need to do. And here's the thing. You may not even be aware that you're violating God's Word. So it's that important to be in the Word, to be under sound teaching on a regular basis so that your conscience functions as it should. For the deacon, that's a non-negotiable. And by God's grace, and of course, and a commitment to know His powerful Word, along with confession of sin, we can know that pure conscience. So a deacon in the church has to be tested in these ways, by personal character, spiritual life, which we're going to see in our very next verse, verse 10. Because the question is, always is, how do you know if they're like this? So you're going to put somebody in the office of deacon, or as we've looked at earlier, you're going to put somebody in the office of elder. How do you know that they conform to these things before you put them in? And that's the whole point of verse 10. I think that this is the, uh, an important section. Verse 10, look there if you would. These men also must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, here's the thing. You might say, well, that sounds kind of judgy. They've got to be tested. You're going to ask some questions. You're going to see if their life lines up. That shouldn't surprise us at all, right? Because we knew this is going to be the case. What would be the point of listing imperative qualifications, which we just saw that they're in the imperative, for the office if you didn't have any evaluation? It would make the whole section meaningless, right? I mean, if you didn't have any way to evaluate whether or not they met the standard, what would be the point of putting the standard up there to begin with? And that whole thing about being tested is the Greek verb dokimazo. It's one that we're familiar with. We've gone through it before. It's present, passive, again, imperative. This is the word that comes from the word dokimos. It's a word that is translated as approved six times, tried or tested once. Etymology of the word is from ancient, the ancient world where there was no banking system. Like we know today, no paper money. All money was made from metal, heated up as a liquid, poured into a mold, and then popped out and smoothed off the uneven edges. The coins, of course, being valuable uh, uh, minerals, were soft and easy to manipulate, and guys would scrape off more than they were supposed to. But there, in fact, in Athens, there were, there were some 50 laws that were put in practice to stop the shaving down of coins that were then in circulation. But there were some money changers who were men of integrity who would accept no counterfeit money. They weighed everything out and made sure that you were getting precisely what you were supposed to get. These were men of honor 
and they were called dokimos, or approved men. This is the idea. And from the wording of our text, it implies this ongoing test. Because present tense says the dokimos would always watch the coin that came through. This evaluation of the office is ongoing. And just like elders have to be from back in verse 2 above reproach, so do the deacons, present active. There's an ongoing evaluation of everything that follows that qualification. And for the elder unable to be called out without a handle, that's the idea here. The passive voice indicates the subject, the deacon, is being acted on. There's an action. They're going to be tested. But first it says, let them be tested. And that's important. So it clearly defines the qualification number six. The deacon, if he's the one you want to put in that position, is to undergo a continuous evaluation like the elder, but before they're put in office, the church first must be careful to observe the very important things that are supposed to be there before he comes in. And that helps us understand that, you know, that's, it's not just an ongoing evaluation, but before he ever gets in, these things have to be in, in place. And I would just pause and say to you right there, as we said right at the beginning in introducing our section, just what we've read so far and what has to happen up to the point they become deacon probably disqualifies more than 90% of the things that you've been familiar with and how the deacons are supposed to function in the church. Just, just the simple understanding and reading of what the Word of God says and the places that we see it probably remove those bad examples from your mind as false. And that was my whole point. I want to filter out all the things maybe your experience has shown you to be the office of deacon and show you what the office of deacon is supposed to look like. And so it's an ongoing test along with a, a test at first because a lot of things can go sideways over time. And just like those who are elders and lead the church. But for the deacons, perhaps they're not doing what they need to be doing. They're not in the Word. Their testimony or their reputation or their family or their children are out of control or their attitude or service or faithfulness or attendance or participation. And so that has to be continuous if they're going to remain. But it's pretty clear from the adverb that there's an evaluation that must come before they're put in the office. And if you remember this, this is exactly what we had to do with the elder. We looked at 1 Timothy 5.22 earlier, just, as, just um, briefly. We'll do it again. Paul tells Timothy when he's going to have to put some elders in place, because Paul's already removed two, and Timothy has to come, and he, he may have to remove other ones if they won't come in line with what those requirements for elders are. He says to Timothy, when you're putting somebody back in as an elder, do not lay hands on anyone too hastily, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. What's the idea there? The idea there is you're going to put an elder in place, but you don't want to do it too quickly. Why? You want to make sure that they come up under those qualifications that you've already seen in the Word of God. Otherwise, you put him in, and, and Paul says to Timothy, you're going to share in the sins he's going to foist on the church. You've got to do your homework. And then verse 24 says, the sins of some men are quite evident, going along before them to judgment. In other words, they're, they're going to come, and they want to be qualified to be an elder. They want to lead the church. But there's so many things there right up front that you see, it's not going to be possible. Then he says, you're going to have to take some time, too, for others, their sins follow afterward. So it's not always obvious what the problems can be. So there has to be some time of evaluation. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So the idea is there might be those things in place that show clearly they are who they're going to be and who we need them to be. And other things will come up over time. And so the evaluation for a deacon candidate would be an evaluation as to, first of all, service. That's the very first thing that's going to qualify him to be put there. Is he a selfless servant? Has he already been serving somewhere and you recognize that selfless service? And what is his reputation then? If you're going to put him in position, what's his reputation in the community? 
And what about the mysteries of the faith? Does he hold those with a clear conscience? And the positive and negative reputation evidence in the candidate's life. And we're going to see some more about family and all of that. And the reality is that some of these men may in time be called by the Lord to aspire to the office of elder. They might start as somebody who is a servant in the church and they've recognized that they're a servant and they're putting that example in that spot so people can see what that looks like. But they may aspire because the Lord calls them to the office of elder. So early in the process, the church is charged to be very careful. Pressures will undoubtedly come as these deacons exercise their ministry and their inner lives will become evident. It's a lot like a sponge. You don't know what it's holding until you squeeze it. And then once it press, the pressure is on, we see what fills it. And the pressure of ministry will reveal what they're made of. And so we have a pre-qualification test in the matter of personal character and spiritual life and Christian service. First be tested, and then we have an ongoing evaluation as they serve that they continue to hold up those standards, just like the elder. And as long as he continues in the qualifications that are listed here, he's going to be considered, here's the last part, beyond reproach. So where the elder, if you remember, has the adjective anapoleptos from verse 2, literally no handle to grab, the deacon has a similar word, anencletos, no accusation can stick, no blame. The deacon can't, or the, the elder can't have anything that somebody can lay hands on and say, this thing disqualifies you. You can't be there because this is the issue. And for the deacon, there can be no ongoing accusation or blame attached to him. Both have the negative particle preceding the verb, so they have similar intent. No handle to grab, no blame. And that's the issue. And again, the text shows us that, um, what it means to be without accusation or blame. Just like it did as an elder, when you see he has to be above reproach, then everything that we see after that shows what above reproach means. You get to the deacon's qualifications, and of course the things that come before, they're there. And the things that we see as qualifications for deacons, they have to be there too. That's what it means that there is no valid accusation or blame attached to him. And it's not subjective. It's conforming to what's listed here. It's not, well, I don't think that particular thing is that important because they bring some other things into, into the mix and those things are important and we want to make sure that we can do, we want to put him in there because he's got some other things he can do and he's wealthy or he's, he's got a lot of good ideas for the church or whatever it may be. See, it's not that. It's not, it's not subjective. The Lord has the right to direct the conduct of the church. It's the reason why the letter was written and so this gives the standard for those who are the examples of service. And so, which again, I think begs the question, does the Lord want anything less for his church than no blame? No, right? I mean, again, it's one standard of godliness for everyone. It's just the deacon has to be that example of godliness, just like the elder does. And there are so many illustrations of this attribute and how Christ expects it from his church. And, and uh, I just want to make sure you haven't missed this, because I've said this numerous times. It's one standard of godliness. It's not two different standards, one for the pew, one for the pulpit. It's not two different standards, one for the pew, and one for the deacon. It's one standard of godliness. And those who serve in those official uh, offices then become the example of what that looks like. They're non-negotiables for those men. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, just to make sure you get this, everything that we've read before applies, even though it just, here it's directed towards elders and deacons, it applies to you too. Look at 1 Peter 3, 13. But according to his promise, we're looking for, a new, for new heavens and a new earth 
in which righteousness dwells. And Peter's talking about, you know, accumulating things for yourself that are just going to be burned up. What kind of people should we be? He goes, we're looking for a new heaven, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All this stuff is going to be burned up. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, since there's a kingdom that doesn't fade away, like Hebrews 12 says, be diligent to be found in him, mark it in peace, spotless, and then here's our word, blameless. So not only is the elder and the deacon to be blameless, every believer is supposed to be blameless. Does the Lord want anything less for His church than blamelessness? No, I don't think we can say that with a, with a straight face. How about Ephesians 5.26? Now, this passage is really great, and we've used it before as we talked about um, uh, men and how they're to treat their wives. But here, He's using Christ and his, how He interacts with the church to teach men how to interact with their wives. But He says this, He says, um, that uh, men, uh, the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he says, so that he might sanctify her, talking about Christ and the church and husbands and wives, having cleansed her by the washing of the, with the word. So Christ washes the church with his word. Part of the wonderful thing about coming and being in the word each day yourself and then coming corporately is he washes us with this word, doesn't he? When we read the Word, we're washed of impurity. Those things are clear that we need to get rid of. All of that stuff is the way Christ loves the church. He loves the church through His Word. He says, this is the way to the life that you have been made for. This is what I've given my Word to do, to show you how you need to conform. And these are where the blessings are found. So washing with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory. Then mark this, having no spot. This is the church. This is everyone. No wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy. And here's our word blameless. So the church is just to be just as blameless as those who serve as deacons, are they not? It's just as a deacon, that's not a negotiable. As an example, he has to conform. For the church, that's our goal. So the Lord in His goodness gives us deacons to serve in in these positions, and they hold this standard up, and people look at them, and this respectability and this uh, desire to be like them becomes part of the church uh, culture. And you're like, this guy is a real faithful servant, and I need to be like that. And then in Philippians chapter 2, this is a third illustration, we'll move on. Just one standard, do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be, here's our word, blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toll in vain. So what's the issue? The issue is this. This is for the whole church to be blameless, not just that, innocent, above reproach. You appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. You're only going to be able to do that to the extent that you're in the word of God, your conscience is rightly informing you, and you're walking in such a way that you don't bring shame upon the gospel. Oh, that the church would be, if it's drawn to anything, it would be drawn to that. Christianity is its own best argument and its own worst argument. To call yourself a believer and not walk with the Lord and not do what His Word says is it's Christianity's worst argument. To walk with the Lord, to be in His Word, to call yourself a Christian and to walk like that, there may be some some accusation, there may be some ridicule, but it won't be able to stick. Why? Because you're, you're a generation that appear as lights in the world, holding fast the Word of life. And Paul says, I'll have reason to glory because you walked that way. And just as a reminder... 
you know, the blamelessness is so comprehensive, one standard. We could just go back to verses 2 and 3 and go through that whole list and apply that to everyone, but certainly to the deacon. And as you think about the two lists, the one for elder and one for deacon, of course, the only one you don't see repeated here specifically is being a skilled teacher. So in order to be qualified to be a deacon, you don't have to be a skilled teacher. That doesn't mean he isn't one or that he can't be one. It just means it's not a qualification in order to serve. But everything else, all these other standards, all these other qualifications, this testimony, this is all the same. It's just an expansion of what blamelessness means. And being that this holy standard applies to everyone, it for sure applies to deacons. They're to be blameless. They're to be without valid accusation. And that means, as we just read, to be without reproach. No blot on their life, without spot, without blemish, nothing for which they could be accused or disqualified. There is, in a sense, not only the moral purity of the heart, because that's really what you want, that's going to lend itself to the moral purity of perception. Because there's, you're visual, you know, you're, you're visible in the church, people see what you're doing, it's not that you're acting in a legalistic manner, you want people to think you're holy, but that you are holy, you desire to walk in holiness, not perfectly, but you desire to let the word work through you and fill you, and then that is perceived by other people. They understand you desire to walk in holiness. You're not perfect, but you desire more and more each day to become more conformed to the image of Christ. That's what it means, see. There's no, there's no perfection in, that, in the deacon category anymore. There's any perfection in the elder category. It's just we desire to walk in holiness, and we have standards we have to keep, and those are non-negotiables. And so people can look at your life as a deacon, and they'll come to the right verdict that they are without blame. Now look at verse 11. That's probably going to be the last one we'll, we'll get to today. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3, if you would. Women likewise must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Now, this is an interesting command. It lands right here in the middle of all this, and it's led to a number of arguments and, and positions, and I hope we can settle them and we'll reconcile them, I think, if you stick with me. But I'm going to give you some background to all of this. You that this sentence describes the qualifications of a deaconess. And so then it translates wives as women, which is what the NSSB does. And then, in essence, verse 11 would read this way, in the same way, women, and then you would need to assume the word deaconess, because it's not there, but you'd have to assume that, are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. And that's how some read it, which seems unlikely, because to read it that way is a stretch. Reading in deaconess here, when on both sides of the sentence, uh, we are talking about deacons, and these men are the main focus, is a reach. Also, the Greek word for woman, gynikos, can be translated wife or woman, and has to be translated wife in verse 12, and obviously, uh, previously in verse 2, as the husband of one wife. That's the same word. So, in it says, it's a stretch to say then that that must mean woman, and then you got to read in deaconess there. Now, in fairness to the view, and I believe we can reconcile these views in a moment, there is some evidence that an order of deaconesses developed in the early church. And the reason why I say that is because when we looked at Paul's letter to the church in Rome, and we got to verse, chapter 16, verse 1, and I'm going to read this for you, and you can read it there on the screen, you can see what I mean. He says, as he's making his closing remarks, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe 
who is a, what's the word? Diakonos. That's the word diakonos. Now, of the church, which is in Chentria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Now, stop right there. Now, let's, let's take a look at that. Now, I think it's important to point out the translators didn't translate the word as an official title, so they didn't transliterate it into deaconess. They could have, and it certainly seems to be in place. Now, we have the actual word servant here and not the word woman, and I think that that's telling. There still remains, though, some remarkable statements from Paul concerning Phoebe, and I think those are worthy to remark on. He says, she is a servant, she's a diakonos of the church. So she has identified herself, and, and she's risen to the point where she has caught Paul's attention. And he says to the church of Rome, receive her in, a, in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Hold her in high esteem. That's how you receive the saints. You hold them in high esteem. And that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. Paul doesn't even know the reason why she's going. He knows she's going. And what does he tell the church to do? Make sure she can accomplish whatever it is, is part of her agenda. And that's remarkable. He tells the church, be on top of this. Why? She herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. This is her habit of life. She has identified herself as a servant. And I think that's important. And so that gives us an idea that there is some support to the office of deaconess in the church. And I have served in two churches that had the official office of deaconess. I'm very comfortable with that. And I'll tell you another reason why. And this is an extra, extra biblical reason, but important nonetheless. There is a letter from Pliny the Younger, and you may be familiar with that name from your history lessons. He is considered a historian, but he was actually a lawyer and an author and a magistrate in ancient Rome. And he wrote hundreds of letters, and of which 247 survive. And they are of great historical value. Pliny the Younger was not a believer. And so what he's about to say, I think, will be important for you to hear. Some of these letters are addressed to reigning emperors, or notables such as historian Tacitus. Pliny served as an imperial magistrate under Trajan from 98 to 117. And he wrote a letter to the Roman emperor Trajan about 112, and this is what the letter concerns, and I won't read the whole thing. It's just concerning the Christian problem, he says, and the trial of two slave women whom they call, what's the word? Deaconess. That's so cool. I love that. I love the fact that here's a guy not connected to the church, and he's about to try some Christians for whatever it is, and it can't be a good thing for the church. Uh, persecution is always hard on the church. But he says these two women are called deaconesses. So I think it's likely, along with what we see from Phoebe, that it's women identify themselves and can be identified as faithful servants in the church and then have that office. Now the question is, is that what we're talking about here? And I think the answer to that is no. And here's why. So in good conscience, I think um, if we look at this passage as a guide, uh, we can look at it as a guide for women who serve, certainly. But because of its placement in the passage, and the required understanding of the word woman or wife in this passage, because that's what we have. It appears that Paul's simply telling Timothy, mark this, that as he evaluates those who may be suitable for office the deacons, if they're married, then those who are serving as deaconess's helpmate, a deacon's helpmate, rather, must have some qualifications too. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Because you can't have a guy serving as deacon and you have a wife who doesn't walk with the Lord. 
That's going to be a difficult place to be in. It's going to be a difficult testimony for the church. And so, it obviously addresses these women, and this will obviously come back on the deacon to make sure these are true of his wife, as he is the head of that household. And we're going to see that in the very next verse. He has to manage his own household well. So that's not a surprise. She certainly is a vital part of the ministry and will help him in his serving. What we don't see is this qualification with elders as the wife can't help in the ministry of oversight. There's no such thing as pastors, missus, and mister. Okay, There's no, there's no uh, um, uh, two, a husband and wife serving as the overseers of the church. We see that often. That's not biblical. But the godly standards here apply again. There's one standard. It applies to all women, nonetheless. So what does it say to the perhaps office of deaconess, if that's the case, and certainly to the deaconess's, the deacon's wives that we see here? What qualifications do they need to have in order for him to serve? Well, they're gonna, he's going to answer that question right now. Let's look. Verse 11. Women must likewise, so in like manner as their husbands who are deacons, and there's a tremendous common sense here, as you just as, as a footnote, not only as to the nature of marriage in which two become one, but in the strength that a godly couple will bring to a serving ministry, right? I think we can see that. Women must likewise, or in like manner, as the deacons, as the male counterparts, certainly as we think of Phoebe, we think about the male counterpart, she's got to come up under that, or the two Pliny that had mentioned, they could be married for all we know, we don't know that. But we know that they have to be, and Phoebe could be married, and she could be married to a deacon, and, and she's distinguished herself, and so she stands alone in, this, in that passage in Romans 16. But whatever it is, there's some qualifications if they're going to serve in that position. Uh, to be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. That's what they're to be. And that first requirement for her, and that her husband make sure, must make sure is there, is she must be dignified. And that's interesting. That's exactly the same requirement as her husband. So, befitting behavior, implying that they are highly esteemed and worthy of respect. As a woman who is serving with her husband, they just have this wonderful pattern of life that people are going to pick up on. Someone can watch their life and the way that they selflessly serve, and those habits strongly influence other people. And I think you you probably have an example of someone right now like that, don't you? Again, it's a beautiful adjective, a very important designation. And her seriousness here allows her to see the needs of the people and help her husband with her insight as examples to others. And we all understand our wives' insight and how important that is. She can play a part there if she conforms to these things, these requirements. And it's going to ensure that they not only are mutually respectable, so there's not one who's respectable and then one who isn't, but they have the same heart for ministry. And then the next one is not malicious gossips. Now, we saw that those who serve as deacons are not to be, what was the word, double-tongued. Do you remember that? D-logos, literally two different words. You can't say one thing to one person and another thing to someone else. There's no drama that's supposed to be part of the life of the deacon, integrity and speech. And here, their wives are not to be, but it's not that. It's, it's not D-logos. It's diabolos, literally to throw words it's to be an accuser. It's used of being an accuser, a slanderer. And it might be important for you to note that this is a word that describes Satan. He's the accuser of the brother. That's the, exactly the same word. 
And so the root of the word is not very good company. And it should be just obvious, right? Deacons can't be double-tongued. They're not saying one thing to one person, one thing to somebody else. But it should be just obvious that their wives can't be people who are slanderers, gossips. It's very specific, very direct. For the deacon to be qualified, his wife cannot be in that way. The damage that's done to the church both by being double-tongued as a deacon or having a wife that is a slanderer, a gossiper, is unmeasured. It continues to harm the church even now. So, women must likewise, just like the deacons, just like their husbands, be dignified. They must not be malicious gossips. And here's the next one. Be temperate. We know what this word means, don't we? Nephileos. We've seen it in verse 2, didn't we? What is the exact translation from the Greek? Wineless. Temperate is the word for wineless. Again, this is the fourth time alcohol is brought up in these passages. It's almost as if there's a problem in the church with it, right? Just in case the wives thought there was a double standard, one for their husband and another for them, Paul's clear with Timothy on the issue. There's one standard for everyone, and the deacon's wife must be an example to the church for testimony's sake and the sake of her husband's ministry. So she is wineless, just like he is. Then the last one, faithful, it says, in all things. 1 Timothy 3.9 says of her husband, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So it makes sense that he would address this for the wife. It's a wonderful adjective. And here it is. Whatever it is that she does, whether she's a wife or a mother, a teacher of younger women, a servant, she's been found faithful in what? In all things. Whatever it is that she does, she's found faithful in it. And what's the standard for faithfulness? It's not subjective, is it? Whatever the Word of God says that we're to do, whatever faithfulness is found in the Word of God, she's to know it so she can do it. And that's a really high standard, isn't it? But no higher than for any believing woman. But for this woman, she's an example, so it's not a negotiable. And so just to simplify that verse into a qualification number eight for a deacon, the deacon then, if he's married must have a wife who has a respectability that matches his own requirements. And most importantly, and here it is, his wife's qualifications are imperative for him to be qualified for the office of deacon. So it's possible then for a deacon to be disqualified because of the actions of his wife, just like it's possible for him to be disqualified for his own actions. And because that applies to all women, it's possible for an elder to be disqualified for the actions of his wife. So this is important just like he can be disqualified for his own actions. And because as two being one, she's going to be involved in helping him serve. And for a deacon, because of his prominence as an example of godly service, she's going to be visible to the church. And as if seems to be the case with Phoebe, she is serving the church in a major way. These qualifications then have to be prominent. So I think that makes sense. It's not, it's not a stretch. It's very, very straightforward. And that's a lot to take in, I realize, and that's, um, there's some things there that you have to ponder, but as we think of all that, I want to close with this returning thought. Think about the deacon, and think about then if he's married his wife, and what a joy it is to think about the amount of things that can be accomplished for the kingdom in a lifetime of faithful service that way. Think about that. 30 years or more faithfully serving, concerned about serving the church and the needs of the church and the people in the church. What a joy that is. What, what a reward when you get before the Lord 
as an example of what we're designed to do and doing it well without fanfare. Doing, again, what we saw last time from J.I. Packer, every believer's primary job is serving the king, is in serving the king's servants. So that's what our service to God is supposed to look like, those things that we just got through talking about. When we offer ourselves to God in this way, we accomplish a whole lot more than anybody perhaps expected, and a lot for his glory. And that's a joy for me to be able to tell you that. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you today for uh, the joy of reading your word. We thank you for its clarity. Uh, it's not our opinion. We're not coming down on what we think about it or whatever. It's just what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to us? That's our desire, Lord, to know that, to know and rightly divide your word so we need not be ashamed. And so, Father, I pray that as we understand what your word says, then the, the issue now is how will we respond to that? And maybe you find yourself, as we look at this, you're, you're sideways with a lot of those things. It's one standard, and you're not submitting to a lot of it. Well, this is the time where you can, because of the Lord's graciousness, come and ask for forgiveness. And tell Him you wish to live in a different way. Maybe you find yourself vacillating in areas and you're failing over the, in the same time over and over again. And it's because you haven't spent time in the Word to show yourself up and for your conscience then to be vitalized or revitalized and rightly informed so it can tell you what you should and shouldn't do and make itself known. So make a commitment now, even today, to begin to read the Word of God each day, uh, to grab a trifold out in the foyer to go on version, and start reading. Saturate yourself with the Word of God. Know what it says so your conscience can be rightly informed. And for those who lead the church, Father, I'm so grateful that I have so many men who lead the church with wives who are just like this. What a joy it is for me to see this, and as I read through it again and study for each Sunday, and I think about specific names, and, and I picture their faces, and I think about what they do, I'm just so thrilled that you do that, that you put those people in place, and you, you bring them into conformity because they love your word, and they love you. And none of us lives perfectly, and we don't do it perfectly, and sometimes things don't go like we hoped they would, but we desire very much to come in line. And as examples, there's non-negotiables here. I pray that we'll be even more faithful to do it. Thank you for the ministry that they have. Thank you for many of them just starting in ministry and others who've been in ministry long, and there's a long history of faithfulness behind them, lots of reward and a great standing before the throne. And Father, we also think, as Jacob prayed earlier, we pray for all men everywhere, for kings and all in our authority, and we pray for their salvation. We pray for the impacting of what's going on in the world, for wars to cease, and for the church to be able to do what she's to do as we wait for your son to come. We pray for uh, witnesses in high places that those who lead will come to faith and, and cease making laws that are wicked. It grieves us so much for the wicked rule that people mourn, Lord, we'd like to have a time of rejoicing want the church to dwell in blamelessness before the culture, not absorbing the culture, seeing how close we can walk to it, but instead walking in holiness, seeing what you require of us and doing those things. We might have a good witness. Father, help us not to forget our primary job and the reason why we were left on earth is to love you and enjoy you forever. With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And Lord, and then to be part of the Great Commission everyone's job. It's the way the church grows. It's the way we become vibrant and do what we're supposed to do is to impact the culture with the gospel. Help us to be prepared to do that and unafraid. I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we long to see and all God's people said.
Amen.